Dear Father, we just come before you to continue to praise your name, to lift you up on high as our living hope. Um, Father, we uh, are here because um, you have, um, you brought many of us here because we are your people and we have been bought and purchased by you, Jesus. Um, we're your sons and daughters and, and Lord, we, um, we don't ever want to take for granted um, that we can come before you. It's just not something we just are supposed to do or have to do, um, but it's something we want to do. And um, Lord, we pray this morning that um, we would just be mindful that we are your children and um, we um, have been purchased by your blood, Jesus. And Lord, uh, just as we sung, Lord, uh, you lived and you died and you rose again on high. Um, the roaring lion, the lamb who was slain, but the roaring lion who defeated the grave and death. And so God, we thank you that we too can have life in you. And um, Lord, I just thank you so much for your living word um, this morning that we get to come underneath. And me, first of all, on that list, that I just want to be underneath your word, behind it. Um, and Lord, would you just bless and edit what I say, and may it be edifying and glorifying to you first and foremost. And um, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart this week, be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all God's people said, amen. So uh, we are continuing our series in First John. Uh, we started it last week up again from a break uh, of Advent during the holiday season. And um, so uh, we're just going to continue on in the book. Um, thank you, Heather, for reading. And um, as I was thinking this week and contemplating this, this verse of, of like um, discerning between truth and error, this passage, um, I was thinking about my childhood and how I was like this compulsive liar when I was a kid. Um, I felt like I always had to impress people because my life wasn't good enough or something. It's kind of a sad story. Somebody should write a book. But um, I told my class in first grade show and tell once, I remember that my dad was an astronaut. And, uh, and so I just remember that, you know, because for some reason I thought that was, sounded really cool. And my teacher, I couldn't, uh, I remember hearing stories from my parents later on um, that my, my teacher said she couldn't wait to meet my dad at, uh, at the parent-teacher conference. Um, I remember I loved the Six Million Dollar Man when I was a kid, for some of you who are old enough. Um, you remember that show in the 70s? And I remember running around in my backyard, jumping around, going, eh, 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 like the slow motion. And, uh, you know, the bionic man, he had like bionic parts, like robot parts. And I remember telling my friends on the way to school once that I was bionic. And uh, so like there was a sidewalk and I remember slamming it with my foot. Um, where there was already a crack, telling them that I just did that crack. Um, I told kids I knew karate, which I didn't, and I remember kicking in a picket on our playground fence, and the principal, like I turned around after I broke it, and the principal was there, and he, and he took me to his office. Um, I was familiar with that place. And um, I, I was remembering other stories I heard. Like, um, here's, here's one maybe you're familiar with. At 8 p.m. on Sunday, October 30th, 1938, at CBS Radio, Orson Welles um, gave a uh, broadcast of the story of War of the Worlds, uh, only they did it as like if it was really happening, like aliens invading the earth. And, um, and so they even had fake commercials breaking in, and there's breaking news, and people would tune in, and it caused kind of a panic because people thought aliens were actually attacking the planet, um, attacking, and it's always in America. 
where, uh, you know, America's always being attacked by aliens, not any other place. Um, and people were outraged, but they believed the story. Um, New Year's Eve, 1999, I remember uh, looking at my VCR clock, counting down till the new year, wondering if it would, like, actually turn over to the year 2000. Remember that Y2K? You know, everyone told, like, you know, oh, no, we're not going to be able to program our VCRs anymore. Um, or in 2008, VCRs are this thing for those of you. It's with the tape. And, um, yeah. Um, in 2008, you could afford a house that was much too big for you, um, get a subprime prime loan, and everyone told you it'd be okay. In 2012, the world was going to end because the Mayan calendar was, going, was coming to an end, apparently, which, which wasn't true. Um, Jehovah Witnesses believe Jesus came in 1914 in World War I. They believe Revelation 6 pointed to that fact that he was going to come, and they were sure. And then after the fact, they didn't see a visible coming. They, they claimed that he came in an invisible way and, and uh, it still it maybe turned his attention to the earth. There's a lot of stories out there. And I remember this. When I was a kid, my mom and dad told me that margarine was better for me than butter. And uh, it, it, they were wrong, um, but I've forgiven them. So have you ever believed a lie? Have you ever passed on information that someone else told you that turned out later it wasn't true? I know I've done that. Um, how many of you are good at discerning fact from fiction? Um, how do you do that? Um, how many of you here listen to sermons or podcasts online? Raise your hand. It's okay. Be bold. Um, how do you know? How do you discern whether they're from the Lord or from the world? Check the scriptures. There you go. That's one way. How do you know? Um, the scripture today, um, John is talking all about that. Um, to determine if the message is from the God or the world. Um, we're continuing our series, Blessed Assurance, First John. Um, in the text we just heard, John is um, warning, instructing his readers how to discern between what message is from God and what is from the world. What messages exalt Christ? What messages uh, oppose him? So I'd encourage you to go to windsorchurch.org and listen to any messages you haven't heard in this series. Um, it'll really um, bless you, I think, and, and bring context to this morning. Um, so go back or re-listen, and especially to the intro that Dan um, opened up the series in. Um, he he kind of started, he unpacked what the book was about, and he, and he unpacked what blessed assurance really means. And he said, um, which I think is great, it, it, it really kind of encapsulated it. it uh, the thought of blessed assurance that it's joyful confidence that you're headed in the right direction joyful confidence as believers that we are headed in the right direction john is all about showing us that over and over again you see these themes um, circulating back and forth um, number one he said um, one of these one of the ways we're knowing the direct uh, we're going in the right direction is number one we started in the right place the right foundation the correct starting point started in uh, the foundation of Jesus and the word. Number two, full confidence in the source to get you there, the Holy Spirit, the word of God, um, his truth. And then number three, you don't change one and two if circumstances in life get hard or change or um, get rocky. You still stay with the foundation and you still go with the map that he's given you. Blessed assurance. So the outline uh, this morning and we're going to see some blessed assurance in here of this message of Jesus. Um, the outline this morning, if you're a note taker, is really simple. Um, first, we're going to look at a little bit of context and background of what these spirits are that John is talking about. That we just heard Heather read for us. Number one, 
point number one, uh, we're just the three points. Point number one, seeing the speaker through the message. We're going to see, seeing the speaker through the message. Number two, seeing the listener through the message. And number three, seeing Jesus through the message. Number one, seeing the speaker through the message. Number two, seeing the listener through the message. Number three, seeing Jesus through the message. So let's dive in. Part one, seeing the speaker through the message. What does that mean? So verse one, read it again with me. You can keep your finger um, in this part of 1 John. We're going to go back to it over and over. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So this is coming right on the heels of the last uh, week's message that Pat brought us, the text. And if you look at the verse right above, it says, And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So we have blessed assurance because we have the Spirit in us. And then we have our text this morning, and John is continuing this thought of Spirit. And he says, however, don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every spirit. And this is a pretty difficult couple of verses to wrestle with, I thought, um, this week. is pretty just wrestling with what does John mean by spirits here? What's the relationship between the spirits and the false prophets and, and the antichrists? Um, so I've read tons of commentaries, or maybe a lot, not a ton. Um, they all provided, uh, they're all pretty divided in what the spirits were, and, and because the word spirit or pneuma, uh, the Greek word, has many definitions, and, and, and the word, word's meaning is all about the context, right? So sometimes the word pneuma means the Holy Spirit, and sometimes it means an evil spirit, and sometimes it means the energy behind something or the essence of something. And so there's divided thought in what this means, what Paul means. So, so once, or sorry, John meant. And so the first take is to say that the word spirits is not referring to evil spiritual beings, but rather the principle or essence of, or vibe, of a, to use a modern term, um, of the message of these false prophets. Like when we say there was a spirit of fear about the place, or laziness, or whatever the spirit is of, amongst the group of people. Um, the vibe or the spirit of a message. And another take is to say that there are actual evil spirits speaking the message through false prophets. Because every occurrence, if you look, if you do a word search, every occurrence in the English word spirits, plural, except for maybe here and maybe one other, is always about evil spirits. The context is always about evil spirits, demons, if you will. Um, my take is that it's both. And um, so I submit that to your further study, but my take is both. Just because a message has an essence in it, within the message itself, doesn't mean, or an evil essence, doesn't mean that an evil spirit was not behind that message, right? Um, an evil divine being will give an evil message opposing Christ. Um, both the speaker and the message have evil essence or vibe or energy. So we have human speakers, false prophets, and antichrist speaking a message empowered and influenced by demonic beings. That's, that's my take. Um, you can look at some scriptures to, to maybe for your further study, but we're looking at a couple. Um, a familiar one, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says this, finally be strong in the Lord and, and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the, the devil, certainly a, a spiritual or divine being. For we do not wrestle against flesh and butt, blood, that, that'd be human beings, um, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the spiritual realm. And then 1 Timothy 4.1 says this, uh, now the Spirit expressly says, this is the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, plural, and teaching of demons, plural. So notice there's plural rulers, powers, forces of evil, and demons. Um, and we have many antichrists. If, if you look back, and we, we looked at this a couple months ago in 1 John 2, and many false prophets in, in this verse 1. And so false prophets and, and antichrist in John's, God, in John's book are, are synonymous. Putting that all together, this is, this is the take I, I feel like is right. There are many evil messages in the world um, spoken by many human speakers who also have evil intent, empowered by many evil spirits. It's, it's like, I call it bizarro providence. You know, God works through his people in providential ways, partnering with um, his followers to accomplish his will on the earth. And I think the evil forces um, are doing the same thing in a, in a, in a bizarro, upside-down, providential way, influencing human beings to accomplish their will to thwart God's plans. So I think that's true in John's day, and I think it's true, certainly true in ours. And, and it's hard, you know, in our, in our enlightened, scientific, you know, non you know, we don't like things that are, that are out there, metaphysical, especially in the, in the Western world. Um, um, but I believe that they're at work. Powers are at work. Satan is at work in this world. So how, how were they supposed to see whether these messengers were false or not, from the world or not? And it says, by their message. By their message. Verse 2 and 3. Let's read that again. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And these verses connect with a message I did a month or two ago. I don't know why I got caught with the Antichrist passages in 1 John, but that's okay. Um, but you go back, you can listen to it, give some context. This isn't talking about like maybe the Antichrist that's maybe that's coming, yet to come, but there's been many since Jesus' day. Anybody who's opposed to Jesus as the Messiah is an Antichrist with that message. Um, and there's many iterations. So they, they, were they were supposed to see the speaker through the message. That's part one. How do they see the speaker through the message? Number one, if they didn't confess Jesus came in the flesh, the speaker was false. Pretty easy. It's simple and it's explicit. Um, but there's one more um, implicit thing, if you've noticed in the, in the text. There's, it's implicit. It's, it's behind the scenes in the text that helps them, and by application helps us. When we, when we receive, when we listen to podcasts, or we're listening to sermons online, or we're listening to even now, right now, um, one thing that, that John assumes, he's speaking to a church. He's not speaking to individuals. He's not speaking to just me. He's speaking to a group of believers, and so implicit, one of the ways we can protect ourselves from false messages is by being with our brothers and sisters who are also filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and so um, right now, and when you go to your community groups and we talk about this, this, this sermon, if that's what you do, um, you as a group um, have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and, 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 and that's a way you can discern whether something is true or not. They weren't alone. Sheep by themselves fall to pray. So they're, they're together listening to it. So, so what all are you guys listening to 
And, and do you bring other people in on it? What are you reading? Do you bring other people in on it? Do you discuss what you're reading? Or is it kind of like by yourself? Um, because God gave us spirit-filled brothers and sisters, a church, to, to grow with. And it's a blessing to, to share with people what you're learning and whatever. And there, there's many good sources out there, many good things. And there's also many things that are not of God, that, that purport to be of God. So we have to be discerning. We have to be discerning. And we do that together. And if the message does not say, exalt Jesus as coming in the flesh, it is false every time. Part two, seeing the listener through the message. Let me explain what that is in a sec. Verses four through six. Little children, y'all, I'm, I'm adding you word, word y'all because that's what it is, it's plural you, are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you all is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice that John now shifts from talking about his readers, the, these people he's writing to, as just listeners, but now he's talking about them being speakers. He, they're speakers now of this message. And I love this. Verse 6 says, whoever knows God listens to us. Implicit in the text is that John assumes these guys are not only just listening, but they are talking. They are speaking out into the world and doing this, which is awesome. Otherwise, you know, this wouldn't make any sense for John to give this warning or this test to discern whether people hearing you are from, you know, from, from God or not, because you have to be speaking for someone to be hearing you. So the way they could see if their listeners were of God through that message was um, that if people listened to them, they were of God. And if people didn't listen to them, they were of the world. I love this. John assumes that they're rubbing shoulders with people in the world, and they're proclaiming this message of Jesus out into the world. And whether people hear or not, that's the only way they can determine whether who they're speaking to. So they have to actually give the message, they have to actually preach Jesus out into the world to determine whether the person hearing it or, or is of God or not. And it reminds me of, like, um, of Ezekiel and other prophets when they were called. And, and I think this verse is up on the screen. But um, Ezekiel, when he was called, God's calling him to go speak to the wayward people of Israel. And in verse 3 through 5 of chapter 2, he says this. And this is God calling Ezekiel. He said, To me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me, sorry, rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Are you in the world speaking the gospel of Jesus to anyone. Whether they hear or refuse to hear. You know, some of us, um, myself included, I don't like sharing 
Jesus with someone who I think won't hear me or won't listen to me. Doesn't, it's not that fun. I've tried it. I've done it. Um, and, uh, but you know what? God's always rewarded it. Um, not, not necessarily through conversion, but by, by just blessing and opening doors. And yeah. So are we doing this? Because the criteria, whether or not to speak the gospel to someone, is not whether they hear you or not. There's that, it's just that we're supposed to do it, whether they hear or not. That's what a prophet does. He speaks, she speaks, whether people hear or not. That part's not up to us. The Holy Spirit's the only one that can open um, dead eyes. The Holy Spirit's the only one that can soften a dead heart. Um, we just need to proclaim it whether people hear or not. Because they'll know a prophet's been among them. They'll know uh, uh, someone who follows Jesus has been among them. We don't have to be afraid. Part three, seeing Jesus through the message. Seeing Jesus through the message. So we talked about the messengers or the speakers, we, uh, how to discern if they're good uh, from God or not. We talked about the, the listeners when we speak the message, whether they're from God or not. And now we're going to talk about the message itself, seeing Jesus through that message. In verse two, we'll go back to verse two. Um, it says, for many deceivers, again, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So what is the big deal? I asked the question, like, what is the big deal? Why is this the primary criteria to determine a false prophet from a true one? That he came in the flesh. In the flesh, in all of John's writings, his gospel, these three letters, and the book of Revelation is a very big deal to John. In the flesh. Um, he loves talking about Jesus in the flesh. It's a major theme. It's implicit everywhere in his writings and explicit um, in a few places. Um, like John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Included only in John's gospel was the, was the people uh, spearing Jesus' side and water and blood coming out. It's a very fleshy scene. No other gospel writer included it. It was very important to, to John for us to know that he was a living, breathing, fleshy human who died on the cross. Um, Mary Magdalene is the only, it's the only gospel where Mag Mary Magdalene was going to cling to Jesus, and he said, don't cling to me. I haven't gone to my father yet. It's very fleshy. Like, he's, he's, he's touchable. Um, Thomas it's the, only play, it's the only gospel that includes Thomas touching his side and his, and, his, and, his, and his pierced hands. And it's the only gospel that talks about him eating fish and breakfast with his disciples. It's a very fleshy gospel. And then if you remember 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4, we can go back there. Uh, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Listen to the physical words. We have heard it. We have seen with our eyes. We looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, that means made visible, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's what, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. It was very human and fleshy. Jesus came in the flesh. Revelation 21.3, John also penned these words. One day when the new heavens and new earth come down on a new earth, a new physical place, the Lord God, Jesus, who came and dwelt in the flesh once 2,000 years ago, is going to come again and dwell in the flesh with his people again. Why is this so important to John? 
Why is this so important to our faith? And I would argue that it's still central, as central, to our faith and um, to the gospel now than ever. Here's some other verses. Um, you don't have to go to them. Just, just listen to the implications of why Jesus came in the flesh. Romans 8 says he came in the flesh to fulfill the law. He, he fulfilled the law. All the righteous requirements of the law were fulfilled in him doing them. And him fulfilling them in his actions, in his body. To, um, another, Romans 5, 19. He succeeded in the flesh where Adam failed in the flesh. Romans 5 is all about that. Um, he, he came in the flesh to relate to our weaknesses when we're tempted. Hebrews 4, 15. Um, we have a great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. For he was tempted in every way in which we were, were tempted, but yet he was without sin. He did that in the flesh. To, to leave us an example of endurance through suffering, 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did, not, he did not retaliate. He did that in the flesh. He took it for us. Another reason is to make us die to sin and to live to righteousness and to heal us. By his wounds, we are healed. Wounds on a fleshly body, we are healed, 1 Peter 2. I think we have this up, 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 up top, the, be, the great... Resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, love this chapter. Fills us with hope. 15, 20 through 26. Says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For it, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. Remember the rulers, powers, and authorities we just talked about, where we have to put on the armor of God, we're fighting? Well, actually, he's fighting, and he will defeat them one day for, for good. Amen. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's death. The only real weapon Satan has is death. That's his greatest weapon. Once Jesus died in the flesh, Satan did his worst against Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he put death to death. Death was gone. His worst, Satan did his worst, and it meant nothing. He disarmed him through that. It made me think of um, Independence Day. It's kind of a trite example for such a great act in Jesus, right? But Independence Day movie, 1996. Maybe you've seen it, but it's another alien invasion movie. It's actually pretty good. Um, and uh, so this giant ship the size of LA comes down, and I think there's several of them. And, you know, the President of the United States, it's always the United States again. And the United States, uh, he says, you've got to nuke these guys because they have bad intent. So they send up our greatest weapon, right? We did our worst against this alien ship. And so they send this missile and they nuke this, this ship and it hits it. And then the, when the cloud cover, you know, half of LA is destroyed. And, but the ship received no damage, nothing. We did our worst and it meant nothing. Thereby the aliens disarmed us of our greatest power. And this is what Jesus, I know it's a trite example, but that's what came to my mind. This is what happened when Jesus died. He put death to death. Satan no longer has a weapon that's effective because of what Jesus did because he had to die in the flesh to disarm Satan of his greatest weapon. 1 Corinthians 15, 42, 44. 
So, so is it with resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. But don't, don't, that spiritual body doesn't mean like, th- that, that verse isn't talking about a replacement. We're not getting a replacement of the natural body and, and we're going to shed all the physical and get a new spiritual body. That's not what the verse says, because we could continue verses 53 through 55. Listen to this. For this perishable body, this, this earth suit we have, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death um, did its worst. Satan did his worst, and, there, and Jesus removed the sting of death by dying. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't raise a spirit. He didn't just come as a temporary man only to return to heaven like he was before. No, once Jesus took on flesh, he, he, he kept flesh. He kept it on. He never took it off. His work in the flesh was not done. He rose in the same body he was buried in. Thomas touched his side and hands. He was touchable. Uh, He ate breakfast. He talked and walked with his disciples until he was taken up into the sky. Jesus' resurrection wasn't less than a body of flesh. It was, uh, or bone, it was at least that, but more, right? It was more. He was further clothed as a true human, as, as humans were meant to be. He became the human that Adam and Eve were meant to be, but they failed to be. They, they fell in the garden. They were stripped of their true, very good, imperishable humanity. And Jesus was raised in the garden tomb. He was clothed with a very good, imperishable body, human flesh. And, and they, were stripped in, they were stripped in a garden, and he was clothed in a garden. The true Adam, the true human. He was born in the flesh. Why is this message so important? Why why is this central to John? Why is this the way to determine whether someone's false or of God or not? He was born in the flesh. He lived in the flesh. He died in the flesh. He was raised in the flesh. He ascended in the flesh. And right now, Jesus is human, the true human one, at the right hand, seated in the flesh of God. One day, he will return in the same body. In Revelation, you can look. It's, we can still see the scars when he comes back to triumph over all evil and he comes to reign. Uh, he, we can still see his body, the wounds in his body. He's still a man. It's our hope. Um, and, and, and one day he will dwell on a resurrected, a remade earth, a new earth. Isaiah says it and Revelation says it, it could be a new earth. An earth is a place. A body inhabits a place. Jesus is coming back to a place. And we too, if we are his followers, we will be made, remade, and reclothed, and clothed further in resurrected bodies, further clothed. The same bodies we die in will be made new again. That's our hope. This is what it means in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, when it says, we read it, when he, he has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We'll be able to eat fish too. Even if you don't like fish, I bet you'll like the fish in heaven, in the new heaven and new earth. The fish is going to be awesome. Um, so what are the implications of all this for us right now, of Jesus coming in the flesh? Number one, I think the first implication is that we have this imperishable living hope that we sang about. We have a living hope 
First Peter 2, we are born again to a living hope, kept in heaven, unper uh, imperishable, unfading. And, and um, this, gospel, this gospel we believe in is a fleshy type of good news. It's a very tangible, touchable, material good news. Jesus coming in the flesh is central, not tangential. Jesus came in the flesh not to merely give us spiritual life, which is what you and I have now in a decaying body, but you will be further clothed. I will be further clothed with an imperishable one that we were always meant to have from the garden to this, to the close. You will be more gloriously physical, not less, as N.T. Wright says. You'll be more gloriously physical. To live in an imperishable earthly place that we were always meant to live in, to do imperishable, fulfilling work, being fruitful and multiplying, bringing his kingdom. The idea of a final destination being a floaty, cloudy, harp-playing place um, comes from a few verses in the New Testament, maybe, and maybe just church history or maybe Farside comics, um, uh, where it's like this, there's a couple verses, and it's talking about life after death, right? Like, what happens if we die today and before Jesus comes back? What happens if I die today? Well, um, the Bible seems to indicate that I'd be present with the Lord, right? Absence from the body is presence from the presence with the Lord. Um, Jesus, or Paul said, um, he, he desired to depart and be with Jesus, but to remain was better. And, and there's a couple other verses like Jesus on the cross when he said to the thief on his, I can't remember if his right or left, um, uh, um, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there's these ideas of what life will be with uh, after death before Jesus comes back. And it's called the intermediate state. And it, it does seem to be like a spiritual existence. But that's not the final destination. It's not our final hope. There's a life after, life after death. Life after, life after death. After the in, that intermediate state of wherever that is. Um, the good news of the gospel isn't that God, through Jesus, is going to replace all the nasty material stuff with spiritual stuff, but rather that he's going to transform it all. It is a gospel of addition, not replacement. The message of the Bible isn't that he's going to save us from this earth and take us to some floaty kingdom, but he's going to bring his kingdom here and transform this place with us to dwell with him forever. That's the good news. That's the hope we have. Jesus told us to pray for that. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He will make his dwelling with us. Jesus became flesh for all of that. That's our hope. In John's day, he's warning his readers of false prophets who were promoting flesh is bad, spirit is good doctrine. It's, it was called docetism. It led, led to Gnosticism later in the next century or two, where it just, uh, and it's very Greek thinking. It's very just like, yeah, it, it's spirits, spirits good, flesh is bad, so you could either do whatever you wanted in the body and it didn't matter, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die, or we, it was asceticism where, you know, like you're just waiting to escape from this mortal coil and be taken away where you could have goodness, you know, and so they, they, they didn't think Jesus could come and get dirty. They didn't think Jesus could have a body because he was good, so he couldn't, ha he couldn't take on flesh. Um, because flesh is evil. And so um, they believed the highest goal of a human was to transcend the flesh. And that's not the gospel. If you've heard and believed that a Christianity, uh, if, you've, if you've believed in a Christianity, and I grew up with this kind of Christianity, that our goal is to escape this and go to a floaty place, that's not the gospel. That's not the truth. 
that we only have a spiritual hope and not a physical one one day. We're just waiting to escape. That's the first implication is we have a hope, a blessed hope, a new heaven, a new earth, and new bodies with him in his presence. And number two, the second implication is we too need to be in the flesh. This is why Jesus came in the flesh is to give us an example of how to live in the flesh. The book of 1 John, as we've seen, is all about walking and doing and keeping and abiding. I remember studying this a long time ago. I forgot about this. I counted every time abide, walk, and keep on. It's 45 times in this short book he, he says these words. Sounds like he wants us to do stuff, right? To live, to be in the flesh. If we say this, we should do this. If we say we have fellowship with him in verse uh, chapter 1, 6, we, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Uh, chapter 2, three, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. These are verbs of doing. Uh, chapter 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked, which was in the flesh. Chapter 2, verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. First John is a book of living in the flesh, living out our faith in the flesh, loving, walking, keeping, and abiding in the flesh, as Jesus did. These other verses, 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. 4, 17, as he is, so also are we in this world, in the flesh. 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. How did he love us? In the flesh. And John wasn't just about word or talk either. In the end of uh, uh, 2 John and 3 John, he says the same thing. You know, I want to say all these things to you, but I want to go to you and see you face to face face-to-face. And I wonder, is this how we live our lives today? Is this your purpose in the world? Is it one of living in the flesh with people like Jesus modeled? Is it one of waiting out or until Jesus comes to spirit you off somewhere? Which is it? Are we using our flesh and bones to love people face-to-face, or are we just waiting to get out of here? Are we hobbits, I didn't say this the first service, but I love this analogy. Like, are we hobbits just kind of like sheltered, kind of waiting for, you know, something to be okay or just kind of oblivious? Or are we elves waiting to go off to another gray havens? Or are we in the mix fighting until he comes back? There's a band called Show Ponies. I like them. Maybe you've heard of them. Uh, They have a song called This World Is Not My Home. And uh, the chorus goes, hallelujah, hallelujah, this world is not my home. It's just a place I'm passing through till I leave these weary bones. That's true in one sense, right? Like, we're sojourners. We're exiles on this earth. We're passing through, Peter says, in, in many places. That this world is, as it is, broken and groaning, sin-ridden. It's not our home, as it is. But it's not going to be replaced by a spirit world of clouds. It's going to be remade and restored one day. This will be our home in a remade way. And it's true, like the garden in the beginning. And it's true, we're going to leave our weary bones, but not to be replaced by a ghost body, but a, but, a re- but a resurrected one. We were called out as exiles to be on mission, to love people with our weary bones, to love a broken people in a broken world, to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, in the flesh. So I wonder, what would it look like for you and I to do that? Um, there's so many good things we could do. You know, our church is involved in many good things, and I wouldn't advocate you sign up for every single one. Uh, we can't. We don't have... We don't have the capacity for that. But what is it maybe for you? 
each one of us to live in the flesh this year, this new year, this week? What would it look like? Maybe one way you could love and serve in the flesh, what would it look like? Because 100% of the time, it's always easier not to be with people in the flesh. 100% of the time, it's always easier not to be with people. It's always easier not to get involved and get our tukus out the door. That's Yiddish for our rear end. What might it mean for you? Does it mean praying for the Pregnancy Resource Center and serving there? And I liked Nicole, what Nicole said like about community groups going to pray and check with me in a month because I want to take my community group there in the flesh and not just pray from a distance, but pray there in the flesh. Be there. Or does it mean praying for CASA volunteers who advocate for kids in the foster care system and being one? Don't stop praying. Praying is awesome. It's maybe the best thing we can do, but maybe it's and go. Does it mean putting money in the Helping Hand Fund and being the hands and feet that help? Will it mean praying for a Greeley church plant or another future, future church plant, Lord willing, and going for you? Being more hospitable. That's one I'm not good at. Uh, I'm not a good, hospitable person. I love people when they're in front of me, but I don't go seek them. Uh, I'm convicted by my lack of hospitality often. Instead of texting, calling. Instead of calling, Skyping. Instead of Skyping, going. Instead of only praying for those people in the hospital, visiting. Keep praying, but maybe visit. 100% of the time, it's always easier not to go. 100% of the time, it's always easier to do, to let the other people serve. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, we're not our own, we're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in our body, in our body. His flesh paid for ours. Our lives, our bodies are his to be sacrificed for his kingdom. I wonder if we are willing to give God permission to take us where he wants. Not that we need to give him permission, but we can certainly say no to him all the time. Are we willing to let him lead these bodies where he wants them to go in the flesh this year. 1 John 4, 19 says we love because he first loved us. John 17, 18 says this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's, he's praying to his father, and he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. How did, he, how did the father send him? In the flesh. He's sending us in the flesh too. Let me pray, and the worship team can come up, band can come up. Dear God, we, we want to be, I know I could speak for many, many people here, that we want to be a church that's known for loving like you love, and serving like you served, and being in the flesh with people like you were with us, dwelling with, tabernacling with. And so, Lord, um, we need your help to do that because it's always easier. There's so many messages that say not to do that. There's so many, so many conflicting thoughts in our minds and hearts. And Lord Jesus, um, we pray that you would be central, that you came in the flesh. That's the message. And there's no other message. And let, protect us from um, messages and evil spirits or whatever, Lord, that would want to, to point our eyes elsewhere. That this faith is anything different than living and breathing in the flesh, loving people until you return. So help us, protect us, Lord, and lead us and guide us, we pray.